All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we, if you're visiting with us this morning, so excited that you're here. Um, at Solid Rock Church, we are a church on mission, and the Rathbun family is just one of the many families uh, living out that mission, and uh, God has called them to do that in the Philippines, uh, but they're an extension of our church. Uh, as you saw, we commissioned them here. We fully support and fund them. Um, it's just hard for me to believe that God's doing so many big things through this small little church, um, through your faithfulness and your uh, willingness to take this mission seriously, and so um, I wanted to bring that to your attention. You may not be aware that we have families serving overseas from our church. Um, one of our ministry philosophies is this, that when we do international work, um, rather than just flying in, spending a week with people, trying to get them excited about Jesus and flying out and wishing them luck, um, our vision has always been to plant families from here in Fort Worth among the people that we're working with to be there for the long term to help them um, not only establish uh, life, but to establish the church and to see the work that we do uh, become something healthy and mature. And so the Rathbun family is the first family from our church to go live in the area um, where we travel to yearly. So we've got a team getting ready to go uh, next month to meet up with them and uh, to be a part of that mission to help them get that work going. Uh, but then when we leave and fly back home, they stay there and keep on living the mission. And as you watch the, the video, you may have thought, that looks hard. Um, it is hard, incredibly hard. It's hard to imagine uh, not only are you in a, this city that has very limited resources, but whenever it rains and floods, you lose water source because the water's contaminated and unclean. That's just a part of being in the rainy season. And then when it rains, the ants come indoors and, uh, and having to, yeah, just constantly try to, to fight the ants off. And just so many inconveniences and uncomfortable aspects about what they're doing. Um, and you might think, well, how, why in the world are they doing that? Uh, it's because they've been called to live the mission. And theirs just happens to be there and yours happens to be here. And so thanks for joining us this morning. Glad you're here. We wanted to give you that update, encourage you to connect with them either through the live event on, on Facebook or just in general through social media and email. You can't imagine um, just how far an encouraging word will go when you are that removed from what you're used to and what you're comfortable with. Um, so be sure and drop them a line. And as um, Jessica brought to our attention, let's pray for them because uh, truly they are living a difficult mission uh, there in, in the Philippines. So uh, there you go. More, more on that to come. Um, I want to take just a moment. It's Memorial Day weekend. Um, this is, uh, I think, a worthy cause to acknowledge those of you who have or are serving uh, in the armed forces military. And so I don't want to embarrass anybody, and I know you don't do it for this reason, um, but we'd like to acknowledge you. If we could do that for just a moment, if you wouldn't mind standing, if you currently or, or previously have served in the military, would you mind doing that? The rest of you join me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. I know that you don't do it for that reason, um, which is why I don't mind bringing it up. And uh, in, a, in a much um, deeper sense, I'd like to also point to the, this, this truth that, um, you know, as image bearers, all of us have different aspects of bearing the image of God and what we see in those who serve so selflessly and sacrificially, putting their own lives on the line, is a reflection of our own Savior who selflessly and sacrificially has died for all of our freedom. And that's something, right, we celebrate every Sunday. So thank you for those of you who are willing to go out and reflect that part of Christ's character uh, to the world. And so um, we're going to get started in Acts chapter 17 in just a moment. Acts 17, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your phone, tablet, gadget, um, feel free to do that. We'll have the scriptures on the, on the screen as always. Um, what I want to do now is I want to open in prayer. Um, I want to ask God to open our eyes to see uh, the truth of Scripture this morning and to speak uh, to each of our hearts individually uh, this morning. So if you would pray with me, and then we'll get started in Acts 17. Um, Father, we truly believe that there is something reverent and sacred about the Scriptures, God. And unless you open our eyes to see, God, they're just words on a page. And God, unless you open up our hearts and our ears to hear God, um, we'll simply just read the Bible as a, as, a, as a historical document, and God, we won't hear from you. And so this morning, our desire is to see truth. And God, our desire is to hear your voice. So as we open your word, God, we ask that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. God, you would move and speak to each person who's here this morning. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are 
in a sermon series going through the book of Acts. If you've been at Solid Rock um, at least one other time in the last 10 months, 11 months, you've probably been through uh, one of uh, the sermons on the book of Acts. We've been working our way through in order. We've made it to chapter 17. Uh, As we launched this uh, sermon series last September, I think this was one of um, the, the texts that I was most excited to get to where Paul makes it to Athens. And it's a fabulous story. Um, We see a lot about um, who God is and how he interacts with with the people on earth through this story. Now, there's there's kind of a a danger or liability that comes with chapter 17, and and here it is. There's so much packed into the details of what's taking place that if we're not careful, we'll get caught up in the details and miss the primary thing that God is doing through Paul in Athens. Okay, There's a lot happening here in this story. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some background information, maybe more than you even want, so that as we move through the text, we'll understand uh, the locations that Paul is at and, and who these people are he's interacting with, okay? So little history on Athens. Athens, it was considered at this point in time um, the epicenter of all Greek-Roman culture. It's a big deal to be in or from Athens, so for uh, the Greeks and the Romans as well, philosophy was, was a huge part of their culture. And they held in high regard the, the philosophers, those who were considered to be intelligent, who could think deeply about things and put it into writing. And so we, from this Greek culture, we get names like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Now these guys were from Athens. Athens was the place considered to be of highest knowledge. It was the latest and greatest in science, literature. Uh, It was also considered to be one of the most beautiful cities uh, in all the region. We're going to see today though is when Paul rolls into town, that's not at all what he sees. Now there was a, a mindset, if you will, or a buzz in the air among the Greek Roman culture of this day and time that will help us understand this interaction that the Apostle Paul is going to have with the philosophers that he encounters here. And so here it is. So for over 600 years or more, the Greeks had been in pursuit of ultimate truth. Now they they interchanged that word with other words, but ultimately the Greeks were in search of ultimate truth, ultimate reality in order to discover man's ultimate purpose. And it's from this time in human history that we get a lot of our modern-day philosophies as well. For example, early on in the uh, mid-5th century B.C., the philosophers of this area and time talked about how everything derives from three sources. Solid, a liquid, or a gas. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, well, most of us learned about that in physical science. And so there was, a, there was a point in time in Greek culture that they, they boiled everything down to these three sources. And then they said, well, you know what? There's got to be more because where do we get energy from? And so they added fire to it, which is where we get wind, rain, earth, and fire. So they said, okay, so all existence comes from four sources. And then guess what? That wasn't enough. So they said, there's got to be a fifth source, This which is where we get the word quintessential, a fifth source unknown source that's the source of these four and if we could discover that source we could discover ultimate reality and then the purpose of existence okay now this took place over several hundred years through the greek culture now as you can imagine with that much turnover in what ultimate truth was it gave way and birthed out skepticism right because if if every day the latest understanding of ultimate truth changes, then I don't want to place all my cards or all my my eggs in one basket because a new idea might hit the scene. I might want to discard what I previously thought was true and latch on to a new truth. And so in the day and time that Paul is encountering Athens, it's it's after the teachings of of Plato and and Aristotle, and you may not be aware of this, but those two guys didn't even agree. And so if our, our famous philosophers can't agree on ultimate truth, right, then ultimate truth can't be discovered. So life then essentially is meaningless. And so if my life is meaningless, then how do we make the most out of this day and this time? So there were two prevailing thoughts or two prevailing camps that we'll see Paul encounter here. Uh, One were the Epicureans. So the Epicureans uh, were folks that said, well, if ultimate truth can't be figured out, and we got no idea what happens in the next life, then let's make the most of today, and we'll operate by this singular philosophy. The pursuit of pleasure. So all of life is about avoiding pain 
and finding pleasure, which birthed the thought, if it feels good, it must be right. Sound familiar? If it feels good to me, if I like the way this feels, it must be right. And so what they would do is say, well, this feels good, so all of my life will be about feeling good through this means until this means doesn't work anymore, then I'll find another way to avoid pain and pursue pleasure, because if it feels good, it must be right. Well, the Stoics, another group that we're going to encounter here, had a different philosophy. They said, if life is meaningless, and you can't really know what ultimate truth is, and it's all about the here and the now, what's happening here, then the best you can do is to be a positive thinker. Just be a positive thinker. Don't let your mind drift to the negative. Don't let your mind drift to what's painful. The only way you're going to have an enjoyable life, right, is to do what? To be a positive thinker. That may sound familiar as well. And so this is the culture that Paul is stepping into here in Athens. So we're going to pick this up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so rather than Paul coming into Athens and thinking, this city is beautiful, it's full of culture, so rather than seeing the beauty of it, what he saw was the wickedness and the evil because ultimately he saw a people pursuing purpose in life, pleasure in life, through the worship of idols. Now in In contrast to our American culture, they gave names to their idols. They they set up altars to their idols. They gave specific identity to their idols, and they had a God for everything. A God for fertility, a God for rain, a God for harvest, a God for war. Now here in Athens, this was, as I mentioned, kind of an epicenter or a a significant hub of culture for the Greeks and Romans. And, And so in Athens, up on the highest point... Um, what was called in the, the city the, the, Acro, the Acropolis or the Acropolis, um, which is acro, like acrobat, high, and then polis, city. Put those two words together, the highest point in the city, because they believed that was the closest place to heaven. In Athens, we find this place of worship, which Paul is going to go to here in just a minute. And so, as Paul comes into town, rather than seeing this beautiful sight, this city steeped in Greek and Roman culture with a God for everything and this beautiful place of worship high up on the hill, he saw wickedness and it broke his heart and it stirred within him something. And so now what we're going to see is this. He's going to begin to interact with the people. Verse 17. So he, that's Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul, we've been watching as he moves from city to city, it's his kind of MO to reason with people. So he doesn't just stand up and say, shut up and listen, I've got something to say. He gets up and he teaches about Jesus and then he lets the people ask questions and interact and he will go at this for hours and days and weeks on end, reasoning with the people from the scriptures, right, showing them that Jesus truly is the king of kings. So this is what he's doing. But a little bit different from the previous places, he, he's, he's used to visiting the synagogues, he goes to the marketplace because this is Athens. Right? On every corner, there's somebody who wants to talk about religion or philosophy or the latest, greatest idea. So he begins to reason, even in the marketplaces there, with the people. In verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of, div- of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, we're going to come back to Jesus and the resurrection because that's the main thing he was doing and saying there in Athens. Now, what's interesting is what they called him. You may not have picked up on this. They called him a babbler. So the Greek word for babbler here was a literal word that would describe a bird that would actually live in the marketplace and pick up the crumbs on the ground that people would drop, like the, the, like the blackbirds at Central Market. You know what I'm talking about, the scavengers? And so they would use that as an idiom in their culture to make fun of somebody who didn't really have anything to offer. They were kind of a bottom feeder or a scavenger. And so as Paul comes to the table to talk religion with these guys, these stoic and Epicurean philosophers says, oh, this guy's a babbler. 
right? He's just, he's just kind of picking up on the trash that others have dropped. He doesn't really have a whole lot to say. He's teaching some kind of new thing here. So they were very skeptical of what Paul had to offer. But something about his message stirred something within them that they couldn't just dismiss him, right? Because there were, there were guys like Paul on every corner teaching some new, latest, greatest theological, philosophical idea. But something about Paul's message resonated with them, and so they invite him to come up to the Areopagus, which is where we're going to talk about next. And so, verse 19, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Okay, remember earlier I said um, the, the Acropolis, and the Acropolis was the highest point in the city where the, where the highest altar was of worship. In this particular town in Athens, it was the Areopagus, named either after the, Gr- the Greek god uh, Area or the Roman equivalent, which was Mars, the war god. So this hill is called Areopagus, or sometimes referred to as Mars Hill. You may have heard that. Churches sometimes will call themselves Mars Hill. The idea is it comes from this moment in the book of Acts. And so they're going to invite Paul up to this uh, place to think. Now, this was the highest place in the city. It was also one of the most prestigious places to be heard. So it's a big deal that they're going to invite Paul to come up to the Areopagus. And so, um, in verse 20, or excuse me, let's, yeah, verse 20, let's pick it up in 19. So they invite him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now pay attention to that word new. For you bring some strange things to our ears, We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was a big theme for them. What is the newest idea? We've abandoned the the, the idea or the thought that you can find ultimate truth and stay anchored there. So what we need is to find the latest and greatest idea. They were always expecting to find a higher truth, a better reality, a better understanding of the universe and how it works and who mankind is and who God or the gods are. And so they were, they were, they were um, thirsty and hungry for something new. Well, Paul's bringing that. He's bringing something new to their ears. Now, let's talk for a moment about what's new, okay? So the idea that the universe was governed by the divine was not new, Right? Um, the idea that the universe could be governed and created by one God was not new. Though most of the Greeks were polytheistic, right? Lots of gods. It wasn't a new idea that maybe, just maybe, there's one higher God, one greater God over them all. So that part of Paul's message wasn't new. What was new to them was that God had sent his son to die on the cross and resurrect from the dead. Because this engaged a part of thought that, to be quite honest with you, they, they didn't have any answers for. What happened after death? And, right, and the best ideas they had were very ambiguous. Maybe you, maybe you just dissolve into nothing. Well, that's meaningless. Maybe you reincarnate back into another object or being. Or maybe you just drift away into some, some spiritual nirvana idea. It was very ambiguous. And there wasn't a lot of hope in the afterlife because they were skeptical, right? If we can't know what this life is about, how in the world are we going to define the next life? And so what Paul was preaching was that there was a resurrection from the dead. This was brand new to them. What? A resurrection? We come back to life? You believe in a God who died and came back to life? This is brand new. And it set apart Christianity from other religions, and it set apart the God of the Bible from the gods that they worshipped. This brand new teaching. Now, just a quick note about pursuing new things. I think from, from my perspective and what I understand about their culture and the American culture today is that that, that quest for finding something new is rooted in a dis- dissatisfaction for what we have today. If we were truly satisfied with what we have today, we wouldn't want something new. right? That applies to our marriage. That applies to the career we have. That applies to where we live the car we're driving, but surely it applies to religion. If we are a people satisfied with the religion that we have, in whatever form it is, there's no need to go looking for something new. 
And so these folks, as skeptics, I believe at the heart of the matter, are truly not satisfied. There is a hunger and a longing, and they're not okay with not knowing. They're not okay with not knowing what happens next. Positive thinking wasn't enough, right? If it feels good, it must be right, wasn't enough. Why? Because something that felt good yesterday doesn't feel good today, so my ultimate reality has to change, and so I'm not satisfied dissatisfaction fuels the quest for looking for something new or else they wouldn't have been looking for it right and so because Paul was preaching this new message this new teaching it hit their ears and they said wait maybe this is the quintessential element maybe this is the ultimate reality we've been looking for maybe we will finally discover in whatever this guy has to say so they invite him up to the Areopagus to teach on Jesus and the resurrection And so Paul begins in verse 23. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so what Paul discovered was in fact that they had come to a place where they realized that they hadn't discovered ultimate truth. And they were leaving margin in their belief system for something new to come in. Otherwise, right, if they said what we have today is absolutely true and they discovered something new that they thought was better, they'd have to discard everything else that they had invested so much money and time into, right, and discard it to start this new thing. But they left margin in their belief system system knowing what? They hadn't discovered ultimate truth. There was still this hunger, longing within to discover the source of all things. What Paul is saying is, hey, I'm going to tell you who it is you're actually looking for. I saw an altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you who this unknown God is. He has an identity. He has a name. He has a character. He interacts with his people in a very specific way. You can know what to expect from this God who you call the unknown God. And so we're going to pick up now on what Paul has to say about the God of the Bible. So he says in verse 24, let me tell you who he is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So first of all, there's not a God for the rain, a God for the earth, a God for the fire, a God for, the, for war, for fertility. There's one God who created everything. Everything on earth, everything in heaven and earth. One source of it all. He goes on to say, He does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, Paul was not tiptoeing around their religions to bring the truth of God to them. What he just said is, guys, listen, there is a true God, and you haven't found him. You you build temples for your, your gods, The one true God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. You put together these rituals and these practices trying to appease your God for fertility or for rain or for success in war or for success in business. The one true God can't be appeased by the work of your hands. Essentially what he's saying is your whole belief system is meaningless. There's a reason why you're hungry for more. There's a reason why the philosophy of your day keeps shifting and changing and turning over. The one true God can't be captured or contained or manipulated by you. Now think about that. Even in the American culture today, we love the idea of a God that can be contained and manipulated and controlled by us. Now we don't use those words, right? But we put together systems of how God is supposed to operate. We talk about how God blesses us if we behave the right way. It's not a biblical teaching. We make that up. We make up this idea that that if you're one of God's children and you have enough faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and tons of friends and your lawn will always be manicured and the house is always painted. Everything's just in place, right? All together. It's not in the Bible. The Bible's full of stories of messes. People who are good at wrecking things and messing things up and God coming in to save the day. 
God isn't manipulated or controlled, but we like the idea of being able to control our, identi- our, our deities, don't we? If I'll just pray this way, God will do what I ask him to do. And we've painted this portrait of a God who bends to the will of man rather than the other way around. Right? We love this idea of a God who, who can miraculously answer prayers, but somehow at the same time isn't sovereign. Right? We like this idea of a God who's loving and merciful and forgiving, but we don't leave room for him to also be a God of justice, a God who gets angry, a God of righteous anger. And so what we do in our day and time is we paint a portrait of our own God. And this is what was happening in this day and time. And Paul said, let me tell you who the one true God is. He isn't served by your hands. And you can't contain him in your temples. He doesn't need anything from us. Matter of fact, it's the other way around. We need something from him. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And here's the purpose. You want to know what the purpose of life is? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. He's describing this Greek-Roman culture. And if you study Greek and, and Roman culture and you compare it to the scriptures, they almost discover ultimate truth so many times. So many times. I mean, just Socrates himself and what we understood. We look at the life of Christ. He was almost there just through observing what had been made and asking deep questions. So what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1. That, that all of mankind can know who God is simply by looking at what has been made. It tells us who he is. What Paul is saying is you guys have almost discovered God so many times. By like a blind, a person who's blind kind of feeling your way through the dark. You've almost found truth. But let me tell you what ultimate truth is. He is God. He has a name. He has a character. He has a will. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, which is important. Human beings, you're image bearers. Though we can look at creation and we can see a reflection of God's character, his his order, his faithfulness to things, when you look at a human being, as we've talked about before, you've never looked at or beholded an ordinary human being. Every human being is an image bearer of the Most High God. In some small way, right, right? You reflect who God is. And so Paul's saying, listen, God's not far from you. You're almost there. And then he goes on to quote even some of their own poets. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is one of the philosophical conclusions. We must be children of God. We must be. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's a really important thought I want to stop on. Because see, one of the differences between the day, our day and time versus this culture we're reading about is this. We don't tend to give our gods formal names and build altars to them yet we are a a culture steeped in and full of idols all the same, right? It's so easy, even for good things to become idols to us. Career path, right? Children, your spouse, finances, right? How do we know that something good is becoming an idol? Look for the things that make you angry and look for the things that capture your affections. Look for the things that you're fearful of losing, And there you might find something that you have created into an idol. And ultimately, by aligning your heart and your ambitions with these idols, if you're not careful, right? If you're not careful, we'll begin to worship these things rather than the one true God who gives these things. See, God is not only the God of the universe. He's a loving father. He loves to bless his children. But just like any good parent at Christmas time, the point of the gift isn't the gift. The gift is to reflect a love, right? It's for you to have a tangible understanding that I love you and I'm willing to give you good things. And God gives us good things. And if we're not careful, we'll exchange, right, our worship of God, the creator and the giver for the things that have been created and given. 
And this is what Paul's saying, like, don't worship the gold, the silver, the bronze. Those are just things God has given to us. Let's worship the one who gave them. And then, there's verse 30, he says, the, time of, the times of ignorance God overlooked. It's Paul describing the patience of God for generations and for each person individually. Is, I don't know, is there anybody else who's thankful for the patience of God? Holy cow. Go talk to somebody who went to high school with me and let them know that I'm now a pastor. They're gonna give you a strange kind of look. What? I mean, right, and hey, you can, but your story too, right? God is patient with us. Doesn't mean that we don't do things to provoke him. He just responds with patience towards us. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, guys, you've been at this for hundreds of years. God has been patient with you. God has been patient. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all of us, or all, by doing what? Raising him from the dead. So for a group of people who just couldn't be assured that whatever they were hearing was true, what Paul says, you can be assured in what I'm telling you, because here's what sets this apart from anything else you believe, God raised Jesus from the dead. Right? You can, you can put together all kinds of philo- philosophical ideas to try to give meaning to this day, this life, but you can find no hope for the afterlife. I mean, you can make something up, right? But then somebody's gonna come along after you and make something else up, and, right? and eventually you're just gonna become skeptical about the next life. What Paul says is this. You can have assurance in Christ, not only in this life, but the life to come. What I'm proclaiming to you is eternal. A forgiveness of sins that doesn't just make you feel better for the moment, but a forgiveness that completely cleanses you, removes shame and guilt from your life allows you to walk in freedom and in this amazing relationship with a God who's both king and a loving father. And you want assurance? The resurrection of Jesus is our assurance. Well, this kind of shut things down. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So they just, right there publicly, some of them just started making fun of Paul. I don't see Paul being a guy who really cared, but... They started making fun of him, and this is a goofy message, there's no way. But then some, we keep reading, but others said, well, we will hear you again about this, right? Why? Because there was still that hunger and that thirst. And we're not quite on board yet, but, but we want to hear more about what you have to say. But some men, so, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among also were... Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, the overall story is not that different from what we've been reading throughout the book of Acts. An apostle, a follower of Jesus, comes into town, preaches a message to whoever will listen, right? Reasons with them from the scriptures. Some believe Jesus and join the church. Some reject Jesus and join the angry mob, okay? Same story's been happening over and over. But what happens different in this story is that Paul takes some time to really work through the identity of the one true God. Now, all along today, surely you've been thinking about the culture we live in and the connections and similarities between Greco-Roman culture of the first century and postmodernism and American culture in the 20th, 21st century. We are a people who have grown incredibly skeptical, right? Right? Because in the, in the turn of the 20th century with the Industrial Revolution, right, we began to kind of put the idea of ultimate truth being God in the Bible on the shelf, and we began to write new books about industry and, and machines, and all of a sudden, a man could do a whole lot more work with a whole lot less effort, and we began to worship the idea of knowledge and science, the problem. Now, there's some great things, by the way, that have come out of the Industrial Revolution. Like, I love the fact that when I need to shave my head, I just pull out my razor and I plug it in, Right? Um, I, I love, I'm not knocking technology and industry as long as it's in its proper place, right? As long as it causes us to think about the creator, God. So the Industrial Revolution came along and then science kind of became God for us as a nation. But then what happens with science is that it continually updates, right? I mean, 
we find out something new, something medicine is always updating. That's a, a good thing, but if we put our hope in solely what medicine can provide, we're putting our hope in something that's always changing, right? Always changing. Science, philosophy, these are moving targets even in our day and time, so we have to be asking the question, what is ultimate here? Is there an ultimate source from which all things come? Like we, we understand gravity, we can measure it, but who came up with it, right? Who decided that this big ball of dirt and water spinning in the air wasn't gonna throw things off, but instead cause things to draw in towards the center? Gravity, physics, chemistry, medicine, right? All these things that we utilize to make life better, to avoid pain, to find pleasure, if we're not careful, these things will become ultimate, and if they ever become ultimate, life will become meaningless. What means something to me in this moment will mean nothing to me tomorrow. Think about that. American culture, steeped in a pursuit of looking for something new. If it feels good, it must be morally right. And when you can't find meaning in anything and you can't avoid the pain, just be a positive thinker. Now, those things might help you have a better day today, but they offer you no hope for life to come. And that's what's different about the message of the church. Now, I want to I wanna just, let's just be honest, can we, for a minute? Even in the church, we tend to make up an image of who God is. Okay, I'm not picking on the culture of our day and time. I'm talking about the church. We gravitate, gravitate towards an idea of God that we like and away from a, an image of God that we don't like. So what ends up happening is we, we major on the fact that God is love, loving, merciful, and kind, and we stay away from the idea that he's also just. Right? We love the idea that God blesses us with things, and so we, get, we create systems on how we can get those things from God. And what happens to our worship? It shifts away from the creator, the giver, to the created and the gift. I was uh, just thinking about a story of something that happened to kind of illustrate how, how God's order of things is kind of beginning to shift and flip upside down. So according to the scriptures, God has created everything. And everything he's created is, is good and to be admired and to look at and to see a reflection of who he is. Um, I believe the earth and all the resources we have, we're supposed to steward these things well, right? Not to be wasteful, not to, not to just plunder, but to, to enjoy the good things God has created and take care of them and pass them on to our children. And there's nothing wrong with that mindset as long as creation doesn't become ultimate. Um, so um, maybe you're aware of, of kind of the new dog movement in our culture and day and time. Maybe, maybe not. Um, this, I first learned about the dog movement when I was traveling to the West Coast for school. Uh, I was flying in and out of Seattle. And I didn't realize that if you have a business that serves humans, it's morally wrong to not also have condiments for dogs. Okay? Now, I have no problem with providing water for dogs that are thirsty, that sort of thing. But it's almost morally wrong if you have a, a yogurt land, but you don't also have the canine equivalent to that for Fido. Okay? And it kind of it blew me away. One of my first observations about the Seattle area, and since then I've learned that you know, there's other places like this, and it's kind of happening here, where all of a sudden it's morally wrong for a human being to be at the top of God's creation, according to the Bible. Uh, just one example of this. Um, I was walking uh, along a strip in North Seattle called Green Lake, and it's a strip where there's a lot of like, just outdoor like, restaurants and then outdoor patios, kind of a new thing here in Fort Worth as well. And so I was walking down the sidewalk and was walking with a friend out of the corner of my eye. I see this lovely couple enjoying this fabulous dinner. It's 5 o'clock in the evening, nice, just beautiful weather. And Fido is there under the table with the couple. Just my peripheral, no big deal. And then as we pass by and I take a step past their table, all of a sudden Fido comes out from underneath the table, latches onto my leg, rips a hole in my shorts and my leg, and then retracts back under the table. And I'm standing there, in awe, my friend as well, staring at this couple, having this fabulous romantic conversation. They never look up. And I'm standing there in disbelief. And so I'm thinking, well, I don't, this is awkward. I don't know what to do. So I just kept walking. And we walked to the little coffee shop, and we sat down. I'm like, did you believe what just happened? That dog just bit me. I look at my shoulder. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm bleeding. Like, this dog just attacked me right there on the sidewalk. 
And he's like, yeah, I just thought about saying something, but I know how they are up here in this culture. You don't want to offend them. Dogs are more important than people. And so, so we leave the coffee shop. We're walking back down the sidewalk. And sure enough, I mean, they're, they're still in you know, romantic, intimate conversation. And I'm like, they're still here. I'm like, I just can't not say something. Right? I mean, that's the right thing to do, to let them know, hey, your dog bit somebody, and he's bleeding. She might want to know that. So I, I stop just real politely. I'm like, hey, guys, I'm, hey, I'm so, um, excuse me. Like, oh, hey, yeah, hey. I mean, they're right here. Like, I, I hate to interrupt your dinner. And they look at me a little bit perturbed. I'm like, I, and I'm like, I take a step back because Fido's still there. I'm like, I just thought you might want to know, when I walked by earlier, your dog bit me. And I go to like, show them, like, the hole in my shorts and pull up and show them. The, and I can't even, like, show them. And the lady responds with this. I'm not making any of this up. Oh, he did, did he? You probably got in his space. What do you mean I got in his space? I was on the sidewalk. Oh, that space was for me. What do you mean I got in his space? And then she went on to tell me, oh, the, blo- the bloody, the bloke, he's just, he's losing his eyesight. He can't see very well. And even when you get in his space, he'll bite you. Take your dog home. <laughs> right? Now, in that moment of disbelief and even some humor, I walked away from there going, see, this is an example of where creation, right, has all of a sudden become more important. I wanted to go back a third time and say, hey, let me tell you how this would go down in Texas. <laughs> right? The dog's going down. Are you putting him down or am I putting him down? I don't know. This is how it would go down in Fort Worth. But evidently things are different up here in Seattle. Now, I say that with some humor, right? Because ultimately creation is to cause us to worship the creator. There's nothing wrong with, if you have a dog, take care of your dog. Don't be mean to your dog. But if your dog bites a human being, your dog's space is not more important than the human being, right? Apologize, put the dog up, put the dog down, whatever you have to do to keep your dog from biting people, making them bleed on sidewalks. So, just, just an example of how in our culture, in our day and time, right, we, we forget the order of things, that God is a creator of order, and he's created human beings to be an ultimate reflection of his image. Moms bear the image of God in the way you parent. Husbands, you bear the image of God in the way you love your wife. Children bear the image of God in the way you submit to your parents' authority and follow their leadership. In all aspects of life, you're an image bearer. Dogs can't do that. Trees can't do that. Mountains can't do that. The most amazing sunset in the world can't do that. Paul's getting at here is our God has an identity. We're not pantheists. We don't just have this ambiguous idea of a higher power. God has a name, he has a character, and he has a will. Now, I want to end with this. Um, I always look for um, excuses to drop some C.S. Lewis or Tolkien into one of my sermons, so I'm going to do that today. I don't know if we have any Chronicles of Narnia fans, but C.S. Lewis, I think, does a fabulous job of describing, and, and, and through fictitious characters, illustrating for us who God is. And so in the Chronicles of Narnia, you've got Aslan, the lion, I don't know if you remember this or not from The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. There's this scene early on where Lucy is at the house. She's one of the kids. She's at the house with the beavers, and the beavers are trying to tell Lucy who Aslan is. I want to capture, I want to read a little bit of that story here from my notes. First of all, Mr. Beaver to Lucy, this little girl, he says this. He he recites a poem about Aslan. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Now in this beautiful poetic form, he's painting a picture of who Aslan is to this little child. And so she responds to him, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is a king, the king of the wood, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king, who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mrs. Beaver chimes in. 
That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Oh, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, what a beautiful description, right, of how we view God. There's a later part of the story where Lucy's interacting with Aslan in person, and she's, she's struck with fear and trembling with his face, just, just the majesty of what he's capable of doing. So rather than running from him, she buries her face in his mane because he's not safe, but he is good. The Rathbuns are not in the Philippines because it's safe. God has not guaranteed them safety. We pray for safety for them, right? We ask God to keep them safe, especially those little precious girls. But ultimately, they're living their life on mission, doing things that are unsafe because they believe they have encountered the one true God and he is good, right? God is not safe and fun for the whole family. God is a God who is fierce and dangerous. God is a God, the God of the Bible is a God who brings to nothing the pride of his enemies. The God of the Bible is a God who wages war against injustices. And the God of the Bible is a God of endless love, mercy, and grace for all who believe. He's both king and dad at the same time. He's both a fierce, majestic lion to be revered And he's also, what? The place to go, right? When you're scared. The place to be near something that is good and powerful and in control. Now I wanna end with two things. I wanna wanna end here by saying this. If the God in your mind and my mind, okay, is not in line with the God of the scriptures, then your God doesn't exist. You made him up. That's what was going on. In Athens, just making gods up. And whoever could come up with a new God, a new version of God, was the latest, greatest trend, hashtag movement. But as soon as a better one came up, the former one was replaced by the new, better, shinier one. And if the God in your heart and your mind is not the God of the Bible, then you've made him up. He doesn't exist. You might as well go home and create an altar to the unknown God. Tim Keller puts it this way, and this one was just really convicting. He says this, if your God never disagrees with you, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I had to take a step back this week as I read this story in Athens and and ask, ask some questions about my own heart and life. What areas of my view of God have I conformed him to my image rather than me being conformed to his? And how many times in my life and my journey do I attempt to bend God's will to mine rather than bending my will towards his? Because if I believe he is sovereign and good, I will be anxious and joyful to submit my life to him, right? He either knows what's better for me or he doesn't, right? And what's competing is what I believe is best for me versus what he believes is best for me. And in a moment of faith, right, to worship the one true God means I'm gonna take your route. Even if that means taking my family and boarding a plane and going to the Philippines and living my life for the sake of others. Even if that means stopping what I'm doing to go pull over and help this person on the side of the road. Even if that means, right, you fill in the blank, whatever God calls you to in those moments, when you say yes, what you're saying is I believe you are good. Your ways are better than my ways. Your will is better than my will. Your wisdom is higher than my wisdom. So I want to end today by praying for us and praying for you. And um, I, I make no assumptions about you or where you come from. Um, some of you may be here today. You've been disenchanted by church. You've been confused by the message of the church. Which is it? You know, are we supposed to be the spoiled brats that we see in some churches? Or is, 
God just always angry, and so we always just cow down, and, and we live over here in fear. Which, which one is it? Maybe today you're hearing for the first time that God is to be revered and loved at the same time. He is holy and just. He's loving and merciful, both. So my prayer for you today is that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. By trusting in him, the promise of the scriptures is this. This is what God promises you. He says, if you'll trust in my son Jesus, his death for you and his resurrection from the dead, here's what I will do. I'll completely wash your life clean. All the shame and guilt you feel for previous decisions, things you've done, I'll wipe it all clean. All of it, all of it. Not only that, I'll put an assurance in your heart. I'll put a guarantee in your heart that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt about the life to come. You won't fear death anymore because you'll be looking forward to spending eternity with me. And that's the hope we have in Christ. So I want to pray for us today. I want to invite you to pray with me as our worship team comes back up. So don't know where you are today. I don't know how Acts 17 has landed on you today. Um, But let's take a moment to reflect and and to ask God what he would have us do today. Um, Father, now we want to thank you for um, capturing uh, this narrative story of Paul in Athens. And God, this just the... The similarities with our culture today are just so obvious and and striking as we read the story. God, in so many ways, um, as human beings, God, we we just continue to cycle through yesterday's ideas. God, all the while attempting to satisfy this hunger and this longing inside of us, God. God, you wrote in the Bible that you put eternity in our hearts. And God, it's not enough for us just to be satisfied with feeling good today. God, we also need an assurance of tomorrow. Father, thank you for reminding us through this story of Paul and Athens that we can have assurance that life is not without purpose, that life has meaning, that we've been created with purpose, God. Each one of us, God, to bear your image here on this earth. Father, I pray for any person here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day they would place their their hope and their trust and their security in you and you alone. God, to leave here today knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only are you real, but knowing that you are loving and just and merciful. God, you're both the king of the universe and you're our heavenly father. God, for any person here today like myself who, God, who knows you and at the same time I wrestle with attempting to conform you into my image, could today just be a day of laying down those idols? God, a day of surrendering my heart once again to you to, to declare and say that God, not only are you mighty and powerful, but you're also good. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit in this time. Lead us as we respond.